the talent is there, the desire from people to find new models is, is there amongst colleagues within uh, independent community news you know, across the country. But but that that financial support to enable people to make that leap is is sadly not currently there, and that is is a real shame. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Media Voices. We're the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the previous week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And if you haven't heard it yet, shame on you. We released a bonus conversations episode last Wednesday in partnership with United Robots. So I was joined by two special guests, and they helped me take a look at, well, they helped me myth bust some misconceptions about robot journalism, and they helped provide a comprehensive look at what's possible with automated journalism in 2021. Uh, had a great chat with them, learned a lot about what's possible. You can find that either in our regular podcast feed or by visiting voices.media, which you should be doing anyway, because it's good for what ails you. Should. And the extract you heard is from my interview with David Floyd. He's MD of Social Spider. It's a community interest company that publishes five community newspapers in London. We spoke about finding a new model for local news, one that's maybe commercially viable enough, we'll find out what that means, <laughs> and about why local news matters. Very nice. But Esther, as our unofficial official platforms correspondent, what <laughs> is the main story that we're going to be talking about this week and why does it matter? Oh boy. Um, so the main story this week is the Facebook files. Um, Facebook has been in, well, I say huge trouble. It's not like there's anybody for them to be in trouble with. Um, no, but the Wall Street Journal. There's a higher Journal... authority at this point in <laughs> Facebook. It's like them and then God. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so the Wall Street Journal are, as as we speak, still in the process of revealing their investigation, which they've, they've called the Facebook files. And it's based on, they've managed to get a sort of review of internal Facebook documents. They've got these research reports. They've had discussions with employees. Um, they found drafts of senior management presentations. Um, and the Wall Street Journal basically re- have released these in a series. I think they're on number five out of, I think they're planning to do eight or nine, um, which is just... I wouldn't say it's anything particularly that we didn't know already, but the way it's presented mm. is really quite stark. And, yeah. and it, it it paints a picture of a company that w- they might have the best intentions, but there's a lot that they knew that they haven't tried to fix that is basically messing everything up. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Where do we get this? They might have the best intentions <laughs> from. What? I think that's I think that's Esther genuinely wanting to believe the best of people. I think Esther wants to believe that all the individuals might be very moral, but the machine itself and the kind of the you know the hamster wheel nature of of Facebook as a platform means that it all gets watered down and we are left with these so far these five big issues which Facebook's aware of and yet was taking no action pretty much to deal with. So what, what what are the five things that we've learned so far, Esther? Okay, so the, the first file was, um, again, this probably won't surprise anybody, but the um, company documents reveal there's a secret elite of people that are exempt from Facebook's rules. 
Um, so like the they basically... book. Like the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly like build a book group. <laughs> they could do and say what they wanted basically without the platform coming against them. Now, th- this isn't unusual platforms. We know that Twitter had a rule that Trump could say and do what we wanted until he became a normal citizen, at which point they deactivated his account. Um, the second one, I think you guys probably have a slightly more opinion on um it this research came out that facebook knows that instagram is incredibly toxic for teenage girls and mm. there was some research that came out about how much it was affecting body image among teenagers and this this came up a couple of years ago and they've basically just shrugged their shoulders and been like oh well this is the one that made me angriest anyway moving on number three uh, facebook do you remember the big algorithm change of 2018 i do i vaguely remember hearing about it <laughs> We're going back um, to puppies and we're taking the <laughs> press out of the feed. Well, so Facebook changed the changed their algorithm because engagement was dropping and they thought, okay, people therefore want to see more puppy content from their friends, um, status updates, all that sort of thing, um, in order to make the platform a healthier place. It turns out that that basically exposed people to a lot of their uncle's nutty conspiracy theories and the whole place just got angrier and angrier. So this this sort of optimization for engagement just made the platform much, much worse. Um, and again, they knew about it and they've not really done anything since. Uh, so number four, um, this is sort of coming towards the end of the week now, um, employees at Facebook had repeatedly raised the alarm about how the platform was being used in developing countries. And th- this is a this has been an issue for a while. Um, human traffickers in the Middle East have been using it. Armed groups in Ethiopia have been using it. Um, and Facebook basically doesn't take any action or any content moderation or anything unless it's a US issue. And the, the last one is probably potentially the most timely. And again, this won't surprise anybody. Uh, Facebook did do a big kind of front-facing, it threw its weight behind promoting the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm sure you've all seen the little pop-up every time you mention COVID-19. But activists um, flooded the network with this sort of barrier to vaccination content. Um, they essentially turned the platform's own tools against themselves to sow doubt about everything from the severity of the pandemic to the effectiveness of the vaccine, again, using those algorithm changes. Um, I think it was, it was a couple of months ago that it, it was reported that something like, uh, it was just 12 Facebook accounts that were responsible for most of the misinformation mm. in America around the vaccines. Well, okay, so we, we should we could talk about any one of those for hours and hours and hours, but I think what's <laughs> important for us is that we talk about what matters for publishers. And the third one of those is what matters, the idea that it the feed and those algorithm changes basically incentivized divisive content. Um, Peter, you wanted to flag mm. a quote by Jonah Peretti there. Right, well, he said that they obviously saw the traffic going up on what they described as de- their most divisive content that was doing really well all of a sudden because of the change in the algorithm. And I guess he's gone along and said, guys, you need to look at this because if this is happening everywhere, then the platform's going to get flooded with divisive content. And three years later, that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea effectively is that, you know, when the algorithm change occurred it was in service of you know fixing what facebook saw as effective context collapse on its platform um and there was less meaningful social interaction or msi which is what they were calling it and this idea that they i know (laughs) and this idea that they were then promote well the the algorithm boosted any divisive content so anything that was potentially hate filled or you know even extremist in terms of you know positive emotions at least in theory was then what got rewarded so do we believe as a result of that, that many publishers changed their own publishing strategy to publish more of that? Um, I, I, have publishers not always done that? Yeah. But I, I, I know there's quite a few publishers, though. there's quite a few publishers that have, have pulled back on Facebook completely since about 2017, 18, mm. um, because they just they just say, well, unless we go down this route, which we don't want to go down, there's there's no point, like we don't get 
decent traffic from it. It does explain why you see the platforms that perform best on Facebook. You know, your Newsmaxes, yeah. your uh, exactly that sort of your you kind of your, your Daily Mails to some extent, and some of the mm-hmm. kind of the more um, Joe Rogan aligned publications. You might say it's that opinion led stuff, isn't it? Because yeah. they're just feeding the there's a there's a definite reward for feeding the outrage engine. Yeah. And I guess real news, real journalism, real content just gets buried. And the the effectively the um, revelation from the Facebook files is that Zuckerberg personally, effectively, is reported to have stalled and watered down any proposed fixes to that. Um, so effectively ensuring that either publishers were tacitly encouraged to produce more of that or were rewarded for having, you know, those articles that they produced as a matter of course boosted beyond the others. So, and I, I, I suppose for him, it's it's a matter of well, if people are more engaged, therefore they're spending more time on the platform, and we make more money. Yeah, but it, he almost doesn't seem, or he doesn't want to recognise that that engagement is not always good, and actually, quite a lot of the time, if people are hating, just spending all the time being angry on the platform, that's not a good thing. Yes, it might make you money, you get the ad impressions, but it's not a good thing for society. Yeah, and again, that speaks to this idea that publishers always wanted to believe that they were the most important people on. Facebook, mm. but for Zuckerberg, they clearly weren't. Do you remember when the the key stat was they went down from five percent of being five percent of the newsfeed was from publishers to four percent? Huge impact on publishers, but basically nobody cared. In fact, yeah, let's do face. Let's do the pivots video then first. So Esther, we all remember the pivots video. It constantly comes up, even though it was effectively five years ago at this point. So, what has come out about the pivots video and its impact on publishers from these files? Yeah, so I think it was a couple of years ago that it came out that Facebook had lied and inflated a ton of metrics. So again, this isn't massively new, but it's it's just a couple of details in one of the investigations released this week that um, the data scientists internally were actually aware that people weren't engaging with video half as much as they wanted or thought they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually one data scientist said in a memo in 2020 that the Facebook team studied the issue and never really figured out why metrics declined. So literally they shrugged their shoulders and decided that... Um, it was professionally produced content that was the problem and just kind of turned the dial down. It's too good. <sighs> well, where did this idea then that, that video was going to be, social video in particular, was going to be the future come from? Because the, the files kind of align align those views with one person in particular. As Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. I thought this was... I thought this was a trick question. <laughs> it's ad <laughs> revenue, isn't it? And he said mm-hmm. that that's where all the money was coming from, and that therefore Facebook was. He, he said at one point that he wanted that he thought Facebook was going to be entirely video at one yeah, point. Yeah, do you remember all that crap? <laughs> Communications will be almost entirely video. It turns out that only a few short years later, Facebook had to, had to settle a lawsuit with advertisers paying them $40 million, although it didn't admit any wrongdoing. Uh, it's interesting to think about what these revelations are going to do to that claim now. Um, he's actually he's he's re- he reiterated that claim a few months ago, so I don't know. Excellent. Pedal. Perfect. Anyway, so what then has Nick Clegg said, Peter? And and why does it matter what Nick Clegg has said? <laughs> I don't, actually, I don't think it matters at all what Nick Clegg says. <laughs> I think he is the most intellectually, morally bankrupt uh, voice in all of this. Mm. I was going to see if he wanted to come on the podcast. <laughs> you know, he's against the idea that Facebook conducts research and systematically and willfully ignores it. Nick Clay conducts research systematically and willfully ignores it if it doesn't suit his ego and his bank balance. 
that's the hypocrisy in all of this, is that they know what's going on and they're ignoring it. And whether that's because they think they're more clever than everyone else, or whether it's because they don't care, or... I, I, do, I do think there is a thing here, like, what what do you do? If, if you're heading up Facebook and you've got this research, what, what do you do, apart from turn it off? Well, there's a start. <laughs> um... <sighs> I I, I I mooted that. Just give it to the UN. The UN is largely symbolic, but it could be really good as a communication tool for, for the UN. Just do it. You know, in 50 years' time, when that is actually the case, that may not... That will sound, <laughs> sound like... Prophetic, prophecy. yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing that matters here for publishers is that we've always known that Facebook hasn't necessarily aligned its priorities with those of publishers. And when you look at the new things it's launching, whether that be kind of, you know, these this e-commerce platform which publishers can take advantage of or its local news stuff, there is always now going to be doubt about whether they are being totally straight with publishers. I mean, I think we all knew all of this stuff, even if it was just instinctively. <laughs> it's, the, it's the fact that there's, a, there's reports internally that confirms what everyone's known for so long. Our and hearts again, always knew it, but our heads now know it as well. <laughs> exactly. And again, you know, there's a there's a thing. You just said that there was a $40 million lawsuit. They settled it without admitting any wrongdoing. Nick Clegg is now back on their soapbox not admitting any wrongdoing. They just don't seem to be able to accept that they've done anything wrong. And we could have spoken about that for hours, but now onto the news in brief. And News UK has announced the launch of Talk TV, which is, which is a linear and OTT news channel based in large part on its talk radio output. So the FT reports it was launched not because of any great enthusiasm internally or because of any kind of financial consideration, but because Rupert Murdoch, quote, wanted something to watch. So over the course of the pandemic, <laughs> over the course of the pandemic, he, he thought that the choice on TV was lacking and decided to launch a TV channel. Um, there were rumours actually of something launching earlier in the year, which is very similar, but they were apparently shelved in the wake of GB News' disastrous launch. More GB News news now, because it has lost key behind-the-scenes talent and Andrew Neil. Who could have foreseen that coming? Oh, we did. You can go back to listen to any one of our episodes after its launch. Um, <laughs> who was reportedly embroiled in a legal battle to get out of his £700,000 a year contract. Um, and he's currently undergoing an unconvincing rehabilitation tour. He appeared on BBC's Question Time in order to save face. So it's just more bad news for GB News, and I think that Talk TV probably has a better chance of succeeding just yeah, because it won't at least sure. look like absolute shit upon launch. So there's a Tokyo-based news discovery aggregation app called Smart News, and it's raised $230 million in its latest funding round. While you're in it at roughly, are you ready, kids? $2 billion. I've never heard of this thing, and it's worth $2 billion. Two billion to me just seems to be the kind of the the standard. Oh, we'll throw out valuation. Yeah, just yeah. The price tag we put on everything these days. Uh, it's got partnerships with all the usual suspects, but also has a local news section showing personalised headlines based on your location. And um, ex Huff Post executive editor Jess Brammer has finally been given the role as editor of the BBC's news channels. Um, after a lot of kerfuffle around past tweets suggesting she might not be completely one hundred percent impartial. <sighs> 
um, this this is this saga just like went on and on and on over the summer after it was revealed that she well, was in the yeah. running for it, and it was it just did. they were dragging up all you know they were dragging up our tweets in support of Black Lives Matter. How dare um, she! I know, but it, how dare uh, she express <laughs> her humanity? Yeah, I think she she was sort of she released a statement in the end saying you know, when you take a job like that you leave you leave your opinions at the door. It's not that you're never yeah. allowed to have had an opinion ever in your life. News from nowhere. The way she handled that, I think, was amazing because she just went quiet. So yeah, I think completely. This is this is really, really, really good news actually because she's going to be fantastic, and it boils the piss of those people. <laughs> and she she is also incredibly well qualified for the job. Yeah. Um, moving on, Clubhouse, which is the live audio app that everybody with an iPhone was talking about late last year, has hired Nina Gregory as its first head of news and media publishers. So it's hoping to broaden the app's appeal for publishers by building out partnerships and encouraging brands to initiate more conversations on the platform. I haven't heard hide and hair of Clubhouse in a Clubhouse couple of months. Gone. Anyway. Well, I mean, I'll people. take a look at that, but I'm not. I'm not convinced it's going to be anything to turn around Clubhouse's fortunes at this point. Turn around every now and then. I get a little, get a little bit lonely. Oh boy! Um, <laughs> a raft of production companies, celebrities, analysts, and generally good people have come out in support of the UK's Channel Four as a consultation on privatisation has ended. Uh, long story short, the IPA's Director General Paul Bainsfair says, we see no upside, but significant downside to privatisation. And finally, City AM is returning to print today uh, for the first time since pausing its print production when the pandemic began to bite. So given there'd be more mooted fire breaks for this winter, it's potentially a bit early, although we're all hoping to be able mm-hmm. to have a kind of, quote, normal winter. Um, in the meantime, though, it did manage to achieve 3 million MAUs early this year. This week I spoke to Social Spiders' David Floyd. We spoke about working on a shoestring budget, how to fund local news better. I asked him why local news matters, but first, how he got started. I suppose I'm somewhat unusual in terms of uh, my media background in the sense that I've always worked in what is, I suppose, described as community media. When I uh, left school, uh, went to work for a, a local youth magazine, um, mainly funded by the local council in, in Haringey called Exposure, where I, where I joined as, as editor when I was um, 19. Mm. And then since then, founded um social spider in in um 2003 to do a range of stuff around both community media and sort of web design and graphic design and that kind of thing and we were doing media training for young people and then we moved on from that to to produce a national magazine about mental health called called one in four uh, based on my co-director's experience of mental health difficulty and we ran that for for um, seven years and had some success and a lot of challenges and then we uh, sort of fell into launching a local newspaper in 2014 and since then have been, we've been launching more local newspapers <laughs> so it's a, it's a slightly strange uh, trajectory into the world of, of local news publishing but one that I think has has helped quite a lot because the starting point for our work has always been we've got an idea for a media product which 
is needed by either a local community or a community of interest. And the challenge we set ourselves is how do we make this media product commercially viable enough to be able to continue to be of value to the people that it's uh, working with and, and the, the area or, or group that it's, that it's serving. And, and that's, yeah, it's a big challenge, but it's kind of, it's a different starting point to the starting point of, of corporate uh, media groups. I love that phrase, commercially viable enough. We're coming back to that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Social Spider now produces, is it five community newspapers yeah five community newspapers we have uh, waltham forest echo which was our first one tottenham community press was our second one then enfield dispatch ec1 echo and uh, barnet post which we launched in print uh, this month how do you decide on the 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 kind of geography of what you're going to you know what what demands a title yeah yeah so 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 it's we're increasingly finding out that the the level that our publications work at is a London borough size area, and yeah, you know, that that may be different if uh, if we were to use the same model, you know, general model outside London, it may, the model may work differently. But within London, a borough size area is is kind of where it where it works. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, we have we have um, a number of you know three three boroughs, one constituency area, and one postcode in different bits of. Uh, East, uh, North, and Central London currently, but uh, yeah, the borough model is the main one. And is that a population size, or is it because these these areas have kind of similar concerns? It's partly a population size thing. It, it's partly that a lot of the income streams are through things like uh, premises licenses and you know, uh, advertising products that businesses have to buy. And to get the number of them you need to make the the publication work at the scale you need, it's better to have the borough size um, uh, you know, publication to to do that. You know, boroughs, London boroughs are not perfect areas for local news. I mean, some some boroughs have more real identification from the local population than others do uh and you know in in a sense to some extent be a part of the the job of the local newspaper is to kind of build that shared understanding across across what may be a slightly arbitrarily defined (laughs) um political setup in some cases but but you know they're generally well contained enough to to make it work and you have enough sort of shared experiences to to make something work i think i think that's an interesting idea that that the local paper is actually at the center of the community and in some sense creating the community i think that again that's a lovely idea yeah i i think that's really i think that's a really important part of the local paper's role you know there's obviously holding power to account is a vital part of yeah. the local paper's role and and there's much discussion uh, which i you know, will have been on your your podcast but elsewhere as well about the decline of that public interest scrutinizing the work of the local council and other local public sector agencies and potentially bigger businesses in the local area and if you lose that you've, you've got a really big problem because although local people can campaign about things via facebook groups and the like you know, what a journalist can do a professional journalist can do to hold power to account is different from what you know, individuals in in campaign groups can do, and, and the role of the local newspapers is is absolutely vital in terms of that. But but yeah, there's definitely something beyond that in terms of building that sense of community locally about you know understanding 
people in your local area as people who may share interests in you know the same relatively mundane things <laughs> or may have the same annoying problems yeah. in their 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 lives and you know building that that shared understanding of that because you know, there's a tendency to think that all all we're about as people are, are people who have a particular position on on you know this this week's um controversy and you know you know the, a political issue or the culture wars and 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 you know most people's lives are are not about those yeah. kind of divisions that they're, they're more likely to be about yeah we you know several of us with very different views on life like to get together and play chess in the park yeah. or something you know it's, yeah. it's the kind of story when we might cover in one of our papers those shared experiences and the you know what what brings people together and understanding that and um amplifying that is is really really important it's it's a, a key part of what we do alongside the public interest news stuff which is which is also vitally important i mean that combination is important in terms of the platforms you're on how do you get your news out to people so we have a print first model which is i suppose quite unusual uh, now particularly for an organization that as i say only started doing local news in 2014 but we have we have monthly print publications primarily four of our publications are our monthly print publications one is a bi-monthly you know every two months because that's the the one focused on a smaller local area in in Clerkenwell um but but, but yeah, that's our model we distribute um copies for free around uh, the local area via a mixture of uh, some door-to-door distribution some distribution in community venues such as libraries, pubs, and cafes. Although yeah. obviously we've been doing doing a bit less of that during during COVID. Um, and then we have you know on street newsstands. We call them these sort of you know buckets where you you pick up your your copy, which is you know uh, some some of them are outside supermarkets, some of them are you know outside um, stations or you know on on high streets in particular places. And and you know they're they're our single biggest outlets of people picking up copies and that's where you know thousands and thousands are, are picked up each month mm-hmm. so a couple of them distribute 10,000 copies per month and then there's one which is 15,000 mm-hmm. one which is um, 17,500 uh, our first paper in, in Walton Forest which is steadily growing its uh, its circulation those are solid numbers yeah yeah I, I, I mean I mean they are and I think yeah, that you know, that that demand is is definitely there. People definitely do pick the paper up, and and want to read it, which obviously they need to. Yeah. It would be a pretty pretty, pretty usually useless product if they didn't. Um, yeah, but but they do. Uh, yeah, and 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 we have increased numbers based on the fact that you know, we we get rid of copies and there there is more interest in in receiving them. So 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 yeah, I, I mean I think the interest and desire to read print publications is still there now we're under no illusions you know if we stuck the paper in in a news agent and charged yeah. four pounds for it I, I i think it's very unlikely that very many people would buy it I mean, some people would just to support what we're doing but you'd have a very exclusive model of, of local news which is not what we're seeking to do so you do much online or in email yeah so all of our, our newspapers have websites and the majority of the stories which go in the print paper also go online we're now moving towards our news reporting being 
digital first, yeah. but 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 the features content remains oh, okay. um, remains uh, print first. Yeah. So so it's a, it, it, it's it's that kind of combination. Because obviously the the features stuff is less time sensitive, and uh, each of our publications has a weekly newsletter which people can sign up for, and then then that gives them a, a roundup of of uh, the week's latest stories which they can they can read. Yeah. And so so yeah, that that combination of stuff. Also, lots of lots of work on social media, Twitter, Instagram, a uh, little bit on Facebook. That combination of activity. I, and in terms of online, we're building up gradually. It's kind of been trying different things, and we have different editors for different publications who have slightly different approaches to yeah. things. And you know, we're, everyone is trying what works, trying to see what works, and gradually building that up. But yeah, we, we, we get a lot of a lot of online engagement as well, alongside the the print first situation because commercially you know print first works so let's get back to commercially viable enough what is your model your business model well yeah so 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 the bit of the business model which is not specifically about income but which i should have mentioned earlier to make some of the rest of it make sense is that we have a combination of paid journalism and voluntary input from people in the local community so 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 our editors are all paid journalists uh, and we also have the BBC Local Democracy reporters for uh, our local areas who are hosted by us. Uh, so, so, so all of those people are, are paid journalists working on on news, news, and on uh, in the editor's case on editing. Then the features content is commissioned from people in our in our local community, local residents, or people working for community organisations or campaigns in the local area. That combination enables us to get a, a breadth of input into the papers without what would be a higher cost of paying for, for freelance contributions you know, you know, across the entire content of the publications. Uh, so, 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 so that that does contribute to the business model. Um, in terms of the income generation side of the business model, print advertising is our single biggest element and that brings in 85 to 90% of the, the revenue for the newspapers. Then we have membership schemes, which are effectively donation schemes. Uh, so people living in the local area who want to contribute to the continuation of the publication pay, you know, in most cases, £5 a month to support the publication. And you know, if, if they choose to, they get a copy of the paper posted to them and they get you know, a, a tote bag and a badge mm-hmm. and, and the, 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 the range of uh, desirable merchandise that you, you get in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And and so, so, so we have uh, 300 or so people supporting our publications via that route and that, that contributes uh, 10 to 15% of, of the income that, that we need to, to keep going. How important is that BBC programme, the Local Democracy programme, to you? We've recently started um, hosting the two BBC Local Democracy reporters uh, from the beginning of July. So it was really important for us as a kind of mark of our success in being a real local news publisher, I suppose, (laughs) having having seen ourselves as these sort of young upstarts, uh, trying trying to break into the industry. And and, and so, so, yeah, you certainly see it as a badge of honour to have have been uh, awarded those contracts. I, it, it, it doesn't have a major financial impact. I I mean, the, the, the costs that BBC provide 
obviously pay the wages of the reporters and pay some of the the on costs so so it's kind of a, a full cost recovery model yep. to to support the 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 hosting but but it's not you know, you don't get a massive you know chunk of swag for, <laughs> for, 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 for for managing the contract so so yeah for, 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 from a prestige point of view it, it, it's brilliant and it's great to be to be working with those reporters and have them as part of the team uh it's not a it doesn't make a huge financial difference there was a survey uh and that kind of recognized that independent publishers like you guys are operating on shoestring budgets <laughs> is, that, is that a scenario that's familiar to you yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there's, there's different, there's different levels of shoestring budget. <laughs> we are in a different position turnover wise to, to a, a lot of our, our colleagues who are, who are um, involved in, in Public Interest News Foundation and the Independent Community News Network that we're, we're also part of, and, and a lot of those publications are one man or woman yeah. you know, at their kitchen table, you know, doing a phenomenal job producing high quality news, mostly online, but either paying themselves two or three days a week by the donations they're able to, to, to pull in mm. or some advertising they're able to pull in, or, you know, in some cases literally being, being voluntary, but while producing a professional standard of, of work. And, and that situation is, is definitely not ideal. I mean, I think from my point of view, that, there are routes out of that. There is money there in markets for local news to 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 generate some income and to generate real jobs. Obviously, the people who, of their own accord, decide to start up something from their kitchen table to to meet the the news gap in their local area are more likely to be people who are skilled as journalists yeah. than people who are skilled on the the commercial side and who are thinking of. You know, how do we do local news as a commercial problem to be solved? Yeah. And so it, it makes it more difficult for them to go down that that commercial route. And the absence of funding or investment to support people to bring in assistance on the commercial side means that people are often stuck in that situation of really you know, working away for years for for no money and providing a great service but not not getting paid for it but 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 that doesn't necessarily mean the commercial opportunities are not there it, it just means that creating the framework where where people will be able to access them is not necessarily um, possible in in most cases and, and and we're because of the kind of organization we are because we've always been a, a social enterprise and we've always been in the in in the situation of saying well, this is what we want to do from a social point of view. How do we solve that commercial problem? And and, that, and we've always had that dual angle of needing to solve the commercial problem. We're in a slightly different, we have a slightly different starting point. Not so it hasn't been hard. I mean, it, it, sure. you're getting where we've got to has been extremely hard. And there's, there's lots of uh, pain involved in, 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 in getting here. But but we've always We've always had some revenue, um, you know, from what we're doing in terms of the the news side, and you know, been able to to gradually build that up. What do you think it would take for every London borough equivalent in the country, you know, whether it's a postcode or whether it's a constituency area? What would it take for them to have their own publication? It's a really interesting question. I, I think. In the specific area of London boroughs, it would be extremely easy because of the kind of the, the way things are, the, the demarcations there. The only reason why 
each London borough doesn't have a publication at the level that we operate at is is the lack of startup investment to support either someone like us or to support you know, someone locally who'd like to do it to, to you know to do that and to have that combined editorial and commercial model in place you know you sort of in in, in every London borough if if, if there was twenty five grand of startup money to to get it off the ground. Then getting something that we do, like like you know, our, our borough level running costs for our publications are fifty grand, fifty sixty grand a year, and you can do a, you can do an awful lot with that. You can get you can get the publication out to to tens of thousands of people. But to an extent, that money is already in the system. In that councils will be spending a lot more than that on on council based council funded public notices. Which are currently going out through the corporate local media groups, uh, which are uh, you know, subsidising terrible publications with, with with little or no <laughs> local news in. So 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 so, so, so there could be something there about redirecting some of that money that's already chugging around the system, but not actually supporting you know, local news. Uh, London borough level, it it, it 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 wouldn't be particularly difficult to do it. It would just involve you know some combination of government and philanthropic funders thinking it was important enough for that to happen i, I i'm not sure about it when you, when you look at a uk-wide thing different local areas will have such different situations mm-hmm. and i know you know my parents are from coventry which has a has a smaller population than the london borough of barnet where we've just launched a newspaper i mean coventry still has a daily local newspaper the, the coventry evening telegraph yeah. you know, the situations are are very different in, in terms of different kinds of local news and and you know and the the, the relatively big city centers with a clear identity will, will continue to have quite good news products i imagine for for some time although it, it, it's once you get beyond once you get beyond your manchester leeds newcastle coventry and and, and, and mm. you're getting to places that are you know places where loads of people live but are a little bit smaller and can't justify a uh, a, a publication on their own in that way and then the, the deal they're going to get from the corporate groups is not going to be very good and the you know, you know there is this managed decline model that the, the corporate groups have, have been following uh so so the, the challenge is you know the, the the old model is is collapsing uh you know, partly through the poor strategy of the corporate local news groups and there isn't the investment and support for for new models to emerge. The the, 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 the talent is there. The desire from people to to find new models is, is there, particularly you know amongst colleagues within uh, independent community news you know, across the country. But but that that financial support to enable people to make that leap is is sadly not currently there, and that's that's really uh, stifling stifling that happening, which is is a real shame. Why does it matter? Why does local news really matter as we discussed earlier the, the public interest news element is really really important there are things that um that journalists can can do at a local level that um that you know individuals and and campaign groups cannot do particularly in terms of holding power to accounts in terms of amplifying local voices you know the there's you know just recently um uh, um, the, one of our local democracy reporters was doing a report on a, a, a lady uh, living in in Waltham Forest, who the council were attempting to uh, 
Well, well, well there was two people in the same week, two um, single parents in, in, in Waltham Forest in, in the same week with a number of children. Uh, in one case, the council was was moving uh, the mother and her children, you know, mother and three children into a one bedroom flat, which had mice in it. Uh, and 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 the yeah, local democracy reporter flagged that up and explained why you know, you know, something may need to be done to, uh-huh. to prevent that happening. Uh, there was a, there was a second uh, uh, single parent who, who was being moved uh with with her children um out of out of uh the council accommodation to a, a new home in stoke uh she'd never been to stoke oh. and obviously you know, you know no offense to, to stoke but but moving people yeah, but randomly, uh, miles hundreds of miles to somewhere somewhere they've never lived is is is, is 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 not really appropriate the local democracy reporter focused on that if Local news wasn't there to flag up those issues. Of course, there would be some people in the local community who might get involved and try and do something. But the amplification that that journalism can provide to that, and and the sort of official independent uh, view on it that that you know, that has to be taken seriously, you know, you get something there from journalism that you don't get from anywhere else. And and you know, in people in that situation, don't have anyone to to stand up for them. So, so, so local news plays an absolutely vital role in 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 those in those kind of issues. Um, from our point of view, in terms of our particular model, the fact that we offer opportunity for for local residents to to write themselves. I mean, once again, on the housing issue, we have a columnist uh, who's written for us for four or five years um, for our Walton Forest newspaper. Who um, she lives on an estate which is being knocked down by the local council, and you know it, it, it's her, her monthly diary of life on a condemned estate, mm. and you know, explaining the practical realities of that. And and these kind of situations, if you don't have local news publications to get those messages out there, you know, you know, you know people are are mostly compassionate and do care about their fellow citizens. But if you don't know what's going on mm. and, and that information is not getting to people, then then you know. Then you know, these 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 stories get lost, and and you know, people end up just at the mercy of of arbitrary power. On the whole, are you optimistic for the future of local news? Yeah, I'm I'm extremely optimistic. I've been somewhat frustrated by by some of the more downbeat coverage of the outlook for local news. In a sense, I I kind of think that corporate local news providers had a long period of. Decades and decades, where in many areas they were providing lowest common denominator products to 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 scoop up the advertising income, and then churning out, you know, publications which were were really terrible that no one valued, and and you know that's the reason why why no one has mourned those publications when when they've got into difficulty. But but actually, there is opportunities to produce high quality publications at a local level in most local areas it's a case of uh, you know finding what the level of the market is in your particular area and what the the most relevant business model is in in your particular area and that'll be different in in different areas but good news is barriers to entry now are much much lower you don't need to own a printing press you can start up a, a, a publication certainly you know easily for for tens of thousands but you know you can you could probably start up a local publication if you've got people who are going to input voluntarily to begin with for for you know a couple of thousand the ability for people who are not wealthy to get local news publications off the ground is is very much greater and then once you as a you know, 
a group of people who want to do something you know, are producing a publication, you can, working with people in your local community, set the direction of, of what you're doing. And, and, and the opportunities for doing that are, are really strong now. So we always ask our guests for a media recommendation for our listeners. What would you recommend? I'm reading um, Panic as Man Burns Crumpets by uh, Roger, Roger Lytolis. Um, and th- this, this is it's, it's a fantastic book. It's about his, uh, his, his life uh, uh, working in, in local news in, in, in Carlisle and, and, uh, and the, the wider, wider region. Uh, and it, it's uh, obviously about the life of a, of a local journalist, but is also you know, extraordinarily funny in a self-deprecating way. So I, I very much recommend people have a read of that. So if you're new here to listening to Media Voices, hello from the three of us. Uh, we, publish... <laughs> uh, we publish new episodes with industry leaders every Monday, as well as a news roundup that's hopefully normally less explosive than that one. Um, so yeah, every Monday, a uh, new episode in your podcast. I was going to say inbox, that's not quite right. Podcast inbox. Where, wherever you listen to podcasts, there'll be a new episode. New episode in your ear. <laughs> Uh, We also have a daily newsletter, which brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media. You can sign up to that on our website or now, thanks to some very nifty integration between our newsletter provider and Twitter, you can sign up for that from our Twitter profile, which is at Media Voices Pod. And if you're loving it, and why wouldn't you? We have a monthly subscription option on Ko-Fi now. You can give us three quid just because you love us buys a virtual coffee or you can subscribe and give us three quid every single month and give us nine quid or ten quid every single month point is you can do it on a regular basis rather than having to go buy every single thing should we should we be encouraging should we be encouraging two billion quid (laughs) oh that'd be nice we need to get valued at that first though that's that's we're we're clearly worth that (laughs) yeah finding someone that will stump it up well, because if you are, <laughs> if you are that reclusive <laughs> billionaire who's been lurking on our listens the whole time, please do head across to our Kofi page because we would love money. <laughs> anyway, voices.media slash support. Thank you very much. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and, as Esther mentioned, hopefully a less intense look at all the news and views through the media world over <laughs> the, the next week. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye. I'm going to go for a holiday. Nice.